As the United States approaches the 48th anniversary of our nation's most notorious legal decision, Roe v. Wade, history demands our reflections on its ramifications. In more ways than one, Roe has defined a generation. And still, all these years later, the Supreme Court has refused to give up its role as the nation's abortion control board. But there is hope. Today, I'm so happy to be joined by Clark Forsyth, Senior Counsel at Americans United for Life and one of our country's foremost scholars on Roe v. Wade. He tells us why Roe is still unsettled at 48 and reasons for optimism when it comes to the defense of human life in the courts. I'm Noah Brandt, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to this week's episode of Life, Liberty, and Law. My name is Noah Brandt, and I'm so happy to be joined by my good friend, someone I look up to, and someone who is so interesting to talk to, to read what he writes, and that is Mr. Clark Forsyth, Senior Counsel at American United for Life. Clark, how are you doing today? Thanks, Noah. It's great to be with you uh, in this new year, this uh, new January, which uh, a year that I'm sure is going to be filled with a lot of obstacles, but also a lot of opportunities to make progress and momentum in the courts and legislatures for life. Yeah, that's right. I, do you think? I, I hope that 2021, in a lot of ways, will be better than 2020. Do you think it can be? <laughs> uh, it can be, yes. Good. That's fantastic. Uh, you know, we're 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 just recording right now, Clark and I. We're just coming off of this great uh, long weekend, this Martin Luther King Jr. Day, uh, where we got to to celebrate him and his great witness to how the United States can be changed for good. Right? The the moral arc of history can bend towards justice. And that's what it takes us to to right now, which is we're coming up on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, the 48th anniversary, 1973. Clark, you literally wrote the book on Roe v. Wade, a great book. And can can you tell us about January 1973? What does the court do in Roe? How does the country react? Well, the country reacted by not accepting it not acquiescing in it, to use a, a legal term. Um, and um, uh, Justice Blackman, the author of Roe versus Wade uh, for the court, uh, anticipated uh, criticism, anticipated media criticism, uh, and told his colleagues on the court uh, that they should expect criticism. But they still didn't understand the storm that was coming. They, they still didn't understand uh, how uh, they had politically miscalculated and legally miscalculated because, um, you know, even though the New York Times uh, said in January 1973 that the Supreme Court has settled the abortion issue once for all. Wow. Um, uh, uh, the, the, the country exploded. Uh, in January, numerous and, and, and February, the numerous constitutional amendments were introduced in Congress uh, to overturn the decision, and that was only the start of it. I know that we've broached this before, Clark, a bit on the show. Was it a surprise to the country at large when the Supreme Court took this such a blunt, extreme action of, you know, more or less invalidating the nation's abortion laws? It was a shock to everybody, um, in, 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 including abortion advocates. They, uh, they, they wanted the court to strike down the laws from Texas and Georgia, but they even admitted they didn't expect the sweeping ruling that the court would issue. They didn't expect that the court would overturn every single abortion law in the country. 
Um, and and I, I document that, that history uh, and that surprise in um, Abuse of Discretion, the inside story of Roe versus Wade, how the court swept away the abortion laws of every state. Yeah, that's that's such a good book, and uh, you know, one day for a podcast, Clark, we're just going to come and come have you read the entire audio version to our audiences for the week because it's 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 that good, and everybody really should read it. That'd be you great. Know, uh, no, I'll put it on your calendar uh, so I can put it on mine. Yeah, j- just twelve hours, right? Or, or fifteen? It's a long book, maybe fifteen, twenty hours. I don't know. Uh, you, you so you have a piece coming out this week talking about how Roe is still unsettled at 48 years old. 48's a pretty good age. You know, it's a, it's a little little bit older than me. Uh, wh- what does it mean for non-lawyers to think that something's unsettled? And why is that important? Well, it, it, I mean, unsettled seems weak. Uh, we want Roe overturned. We, uh, you know, nobody is satisfied that it's unsettled. But unsettled is uh, key to the whole question of the Supreme Court's review of precedent. Because the, the law of precedent relies on that old Latin maxim that lawyers use, um, stare decisis. But it's not just stare decisis. The whole legal maxim, which is usually expressed in the shorthand stare decisis, actually means um, uh, don't overturn the precedents or, or, or keep to the precedents um, and don't overturn settled points. So the whole point of stare decisis or the law of precedent is whether the law or the decision is settled or unsettled. If it's settled, then a judge needs a compelling reason to overturn it. If it's unsettled, then it really isn't due a lot of respect and it's unsettled for um, pr- because it has problems. And um, so the fact that the pro-life movement has kept Roe unsettled for 48 years is huge. You know, in, in my intro, Clark, w- would you disagree with what I said? I said that in a lot of ways, Roe is defined a generation, right? It's it's almost 50 years old. And what would you say to someone who says, sure, Roe has some problems. Maybe it would have been better to, to legalize abortion in other ways. But I mean, it's been almost 50 years, Clark. Let it go. Roe v. Wade is here to stay. 50 years, 48 years, precisely, isn't very long. Um, would you like Plessy versus Ferguson, which endorsed um, Separate But Equal, which endorsed Jim Crow? Uh, would you like that to be the law of the land because it was 58 years old when it was overturned in Brown versus Board of Education? The court has overturned precedents that were more than 100 years old. So 48 in, in the scope of the Supreme Court's history is not that old. Uh, the court has overturned older precedents. Um, um, but but the, the more compelling point, I think, even though uh, they claim otherwise, abortion advocates claim otherwise, is that contrary to the claim that it's settled, it's not settled. And it's not settled for a, a number of different reasons. And, and yeah. the, the, the cause for life in America has kept it unsettled principally by its 48 years of agitation and opposition. Mm. And, 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 there, and there's been, you know, you said that you we want Roe overturned, not unsettled. And right so far, we have been unsuccessful in overturning it. But keeping it unsettled is a success in itself. And there have been a lot of pro-life successes at the Supreme Court since 1973, right? There have. Um, but even those 
those decisions by the court have contributed to the unsettling because there isn't a coherent, consistent 48 years of the court reaffirming Roe versus Wade time after time. That's, that isn't reality. That isn't what happened. The court has instead flip-flopped. It's applied different standards for this case and different standards for the next case and then different standards for the next case. And the latest example was last June in the June Medical versus Rousseau case from Louisiana in which the court flip-flopped again and applied different standards from the case before. And so um, that has contributed, it's been one of the factors that has contributed to what's kept it unsettled. Wow. Yeah, you know, Clark, I want to get into some of these specific reasons why Roe was badly decided that keeps it unsettled and the way that you can see it maybe be overturned in the future. But before we do, you know, can you comment on your thoughts on the March for Life, right? Every year, uh, thousands upon thousands of pro-life activists gather to show the Supreme Court physically that Roe v. Wade is unsettled. I know this year it's going to look a little bit different uh, because of the pandemic. It's going to be a smaller in-person gathering and, and more virtual. But, you know, in, in 2022, I'm sure there's going to be 100,000 people at the Supreme Court steps again. So do you think that, that the March for Life has played a part in keeping Roe unsettled? Absolutely. I mean, what what it's been what? Every year since 1974, a year after Roe v. Wow. Wade, it started by Nellie Gray in 1974, and aside from the fact that it's grown, aside from the fact that it's attracted vice presidents and presidents and members of the House and Senate and celebrities and professional football players, um, the, the, the key is that it's every single January at around the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, you have a, a growing march in Washington for one primary reason, to protest one Supreme Court decision, and that's Roe versus Wade. And you can't say that about any other Supreme Court decision in American history. Wow. And, and, and the justices hear it, right? It's, you know, the justices are non-political. They don't have a constituency. But there, there is a time where acceptance of a ruling matters, isn't there? Absolutely. Uh, the, the lawyers call it and the judges call it acquiescence or agreement, meaning have, have the judges agreed with it? Uh, has the public agreed with it? Have lawyers agreed with it? Have academics agreed with it? And and uh, the answer is no. Um, uh, there hasn't been agreement um, f by uh, any of those constituencies. Uh, you know, judicial criticism has been constant. Academic criticism has been constant. The public, um, through many different avenues and and vehicles, including the March for Life, has not agreed to Roe versus Wade. So the fact that a lack of agreement is, is the, first, the first element, the first factor that shows Roe's unsettled. What's the significance, Clark, that there are so many, you know, respected legal scholars on sort of the pro-abortion side or the left, people who think that abortion should be a constitutional right, who think that Roe v. Wade was badly decided, that even though they they uh, they like the outcome, they think that the rationale and the actual opinion uh, is not worth keeping. What Does that have significance to the fight today? Absolutely. I mean, uh, legal criticism started in 1973. Um, prominent um, constitutional scholars, 
uh, a whole slew of them, uh, criticized the decision. They said they might have said things like, "Well, as public policy, I think abortion should be legal," um, but Roe versus Wade is a terrible decision. And so, on the policy, they might have been pro-abortion, but they realized that Roe versus Wade had serious problems. I mean, John Hart Ely in the Yale Law Review, um, Lawrence Tribe. Um, in 1983, Harvard professor Mark Tushnet, um, he said as a, Tushnet said, as a matter of simple craft, um, the, uh, the Blackman's decision in, um, in Roe versus Wade is simply terrible. Um, and, uh, and, and the criticism has never died down. It's continued uh, to this day. I want to read this quote from Professor John Hart Ely that you emphasize in your piece, Clark. So this is Professor John Hart Ely of Yale Law School. He writes, quote, What is frightening about Roe is that this super protected right is not inferable from the language of the Constitution. The framers thinking respecting the specific problem and issue or any general value derivable from the provisions they included Right. What he's saying is that sort of this super precedent and the super right that has become abortion that has come from Roe v. Wade, that it's the even even he sort of a progressive on law. He, he Where's that coming from? He can't find it in the Constitution, which is what the Supreme Court is supposed to be telling uh, it, making decisions based on. Amen. Uh, and, and Ely was the first of of dozens who have said the court didn't explain how this is rooted in the Constitution. Where is it rooted in the Constitution? And no one has been able to explain that in 48 years. Um, I mean, today in, in 2021, uh, abor uh, pro-abortion scholars, pro-abortion activists will say, basically, I really like abortion, but they can't explain how the Supreme Court's decision and its abortion edicts over the years have been rooted in the Constitution. And if it's not rooted in the Constitution, then it should be left to the democratic process and to the states. What really governs us today in so many ways, it's it's Roe v. Wade, but it's really that successor case, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which we, we've got to talk about a little bit on the show before, Clark. You know, that first sentence of Planned Parenthood v. Casey sticks out to me so much. Uh, that liberty has no refuge in a jurisprudence of doubt. That, you know, Casey was supposed to finally, you know, maybe Roe v. Wade wasn't settled, but Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992 was going to settle this issue for all. Did it work? Did Planned Parenthood v. Casey settle the issue? Absolutely not. And uh, that's shown by again by the June medical decision um, and uh, the continued flip-flop of the justices in the standards that they apply to state legislation. Um, it's, uh, I mean, abortion advo uh, advocates will claim Rose settled or that Casey settled it or that the court over has reaffirmed Roe numerous times. And none of that is true. Um, in three decisions, the court reaffirmed it in, in Akron in 1983, in Thornburg in 1986, in Casey in 1992. But they only did so because they said, well, we, we, we decided this. They stood on, on the phrase stare decisis. But they never explained in I, any of those three decisions how abortion is rooted in the Constitution. They still have never done it in 48 years 
and 30 plus cases. Never, ever have they done that. Wow. Wow. And, you know, something that you've highlighted is that expectations have flipped, right? That now so many people expect Roe at some point to be overturned. What what does it mean that now instead of people thinking it's going to be here forever, people just think it's inevitable, it's a matter of time that, you know, it's destined for the dustbin? Well, that's another factor of precedent that supposedly if a decision settled, that there are settled expectations that um, the American people or other stakeholders uh, expect that the law is going to stay the same because it's settled. Um, uh, so um, abortion advocates will claim, well, there are, there are all these settled expectations. But, but ever so, I mean, it, it's increased since 2016. I mean, it's consistently happened year after year that advocates have, have recognized that Roe, uh, have admitted that uh, uh, Roe is unsettled in some regards. But ever since the election of 2016, uh, the chorus has been growing that uh, Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned. Um, you know, a, a AUL uh, president and CEO Catherine Foster was invited to a to a debate um, uh, in the fall of 2019 at the National Constitution Center. And the two abortion advocates who were on the panel debating her basically said uh, overtly and directly, this court is going to overturn Roe versus Wade. Wow. And, um, the media, I mean, not, you not know, a lot of you, equivocation there, Clark. That sounds pretty confident they, they were. <laughs> uh, they were. And um, um, I mean, you you cover the media, you know, cl more closely than I do. And, and you know that, uh, you know, NPR and, uh, you know, media commentators across the spectrum have been claiming for the last, well, since the 2016 election yeah. that um, Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned, that it's threatened, that this court is going to do it, and so you forth. You can look at these more progressive abortion-friendly states that are taking these efforts to codify Roe, right, in their state law, because they're, they think, these uh, abortion-minded state legislators, that Roe is going to go bye-bye, and so they need to codify in their state law. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I think it's really sad that um, states like New York and Illinois have uh, legal. Massachusetts have legalized abortion basically from conception to birth for any reason yeah. whatsoever. Um, but what the what the red states and the blue states did in 2019 and 2020 um, shows that um, the the blue states are passing extreme abortion legalization laws because they expect Roe to be overturned. Exactly. Red states are passing uh, protections for life uh, because they expect Roe to be overturned. So both actions of the blue states and the red states are consistent because they expect Roe to be overturned. Clark, for years, the pro-life movement has talked about the need for the sixth justice, right? We need the sixth justice who can vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, are we there? Do we have her? I think we're, I think we have the best majority on the Supreme Court since 1973 or, or before. Um, and uh, I think that the road is still going to be difficult because uh, of the uh, billion dollar foundations and the uh, political parties and uh, 
the abortion advocates who are very well funded are going to fight tooth and nail to prevent even this court from overturning Roe versus Wade. But I mean, we want the largest possible majority on the court. I think we have um, uh, the the best court we've had in 48 years, and um, and I, I think it would be wonderful to have a, a six justice majority overturning Roe because. If it's just 5-4, uh, then it's inherently unstable. One of the five can retire, can leave the court. They could be replaced by somebody who's pro-abortion. The 5-4 overruling could be overturned 5-4. Um, you know, we don't want that. Uh, we, we, we want it uh, row overturned permanently. So 6-3 is better than 5-4. But, you know, it would be even better to have 7-2 or 8-1 or 9-0. That's important for, uh, I think, public acceptance. The larger majority on the court, the better public acceptance. So we still have to be working through Senate elections and presidential elections to expand the majority on the court. Yeah, that's a great reminder. I mean, you know, Clark, to put you on the spot a bit, to give some red meat to the pro-lifers like Noah, you know, sitting at their house in Missouri, uh, wanting the Supreme Court to act. A couple years ago, you wrote... uh, a draft opinion over overruling Roe v. Wade, which sort of would give justices a template of really how, how they can do it, and that's that's accessible on the AUL website, AUL.org, and it's a really good read. But uh, if you if you had to say who might uh, who might be the author of such opinion, or are you thinking uh, could it be a Justice Thomas, a Justice Barrett, a Justice Alito? Well, I think it could possibly be any of those three. Um, uh, you know. Ever since Justice Barrett joined the court, um, we've been watching very carefully not only what she writes and the votes she makes, but also the dynamic within the court. And I think the dynamic within the court has changed positively. For example, look at Thanksgiving Eve when um, the five justices voted to uh, overturn the um, limits on religious gatherings in in New York City, uh, the case involving the uh, Diocese of Brooklyn. Um, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett uh, joined together, those five joined together to overturn those limits on religious gathering. And when those five get together, it's, it's, it, they, they have the real possibility of pulling Ju- Chief Justice Roberts over to join them and create a six justice majority. And that happened um, on uh, abortion and the FDA's uh, requirement of in-person administration of, of RU486 um, uh, two weeks ago. And um, that was another demonstration of the change dynamic that if Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett join in a five justice decision, they can pull then just Chief Justice Roberts over, which they did. And that's a dynamic we've never had in 48 years. Wow. And that, that's amazing. And, you know, th- this is a little bit of punditry here, but we always hear that Justice Roberts is so interested in preserving the institutional legitimacy of the court, which I sympathize with. But at the end of the day, if there are five votes to overturn Roe and it's happening with or without him, you think it would it would bode better for the institutional legitimacy if he voted with the majority to overturn Roe, don't you think? 
that's a dynamic that I uh, agree with, and I, uh, I hope he will see it as well. That's fantastic, Clark. Well, this is the uh, the forty the fortieth anniversary of row. We we urge everybody since the March for Life will mostly be virtual this year to join online for that and to uh, to keep advocating in their states and in their communities and to keep uh, reading Clark to know what's going on in the Supreme Court. Uh, but Clark, every week here at Life, Liberty, and Law, we do a little something called our weekly shot of gratitude, where we just talk about something that we are thankful for. Uh, I'll go ahead and begin. Something I'm grateful for is the snow. Uh, we've had our first real snow here this week in St. Louis, and it was really delightful. You know, I, I, this I this is the first year I've had a house, so I got to shovel my driveway and put salt there. It felt very, you know, 1950s, very Rockwell. Uh, I had a good time. So maybe 10 years from now, I won't like shoveling my driveway, but for now, <laughs> I'm a big fan. Clark, is, is there anything that you've been grateful for this week? Absolutely. Um, and because yesterday was um, Martin Luther King anniversary, uh, and becomes a, because it only comes around once a year, I, I have to say that I'm uh, grateful for for Dr. King and his legacy, and uh, for um, uh, all that that meant to civil rights and the civil rights of of millions of of Black Americans, and the inspiration that his legacy, his writings, his speaking, his nonviolent philosophy has meant for um, the pro life movement and the inspiration that we. Um, have have garnered over the years from all that Dr. King did. Um, and that's been a great inspiration, and it's kept me in this fight for 35 years. So I'm grateful for Dr. King and his legacy and the holiday. That's powerful, Clark. And it just it reminds us that, you know, one person can really make a difference and that when people join together to make a movement, justice can prevail, right? Amen. Well, Clark, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Noah. It's always great talking with you, uh, and I look forward to the next time. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Rate the show and leave a review. Even mess your friend. Tell them that you've discovered life, liberty, and law. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for me or especially for Mr. Clark Forsyth, just send us an email at life at AUL.org. I'll make sure I track down an answer for you. I'm Noah Brandt. Until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.